16, verses 6 through 15. Our message this morning, the Holy Spirit led them to to Lydia. Last time we looked at this text, we observed some... The events in this text reveal some specific and clear direction from the Holy Spirit, and we're going to look at that once more this morning. But may I remind you, the last time we were together, we looked at the very simple idea that if you desire to have that kind of clear and direct leading from the Holy Spirit, you need to realize you already have it, and it is in the Word of God. And to that word, we all must be obedient. Too many times we see too many Christians asking God for direction. The direction is in his word. If we want to be blessed by any more further direction, any more specific direction, we need to be devoted to him. In this morning's text, in this morning's lesson, we want to look once more at the text because there's more here to find. Allow me to read verses 6 through 15. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas and... A vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a Macedonian man was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira in a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lord in heaven, as we look into your word once more this morning, help us to understand, help your servant to make clear what is here before us, that we may know who we are to be and how we are to live as faithful children of our Lord Jesus. It is for his glory we ask this. Amen. 
I'm going to make a disclosure statement to begin with. I looked at several commentaries as I prepare these messages. What do other Bible teachers and preachers have to say about these texts? And I've not looked at them all, but I've not yet seen one or found one that offers help with a question, why Lydia, or who is Lydia, or why was she so important? The Apostle Paul to Timothy said that all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction in righteousness. If all scripture is given for that purpose, then there is something here we need to see about this woman. With all the other commentaries I've read, I do not disagree with with ones I've read. Because the ones I've read have been particularly from the Reformed perspective. And I'm not at all suggesting that any of them are wrong, but I prayerfully sought some clarity about a specific part of this passage, and that's what I'm responding to this morning. I have personally heard some liberal ministers and some feminists cite this passage as one of the passages for a proof, proof text that in the New Testament church, women are acceptable as pastors. This is one of the ones, look, he first came to Lydia. Something new is changing here. That's not what it's teaching. I even read one comment, one where, uh, I don't remember specifically where, someone thought that perhaps she went back to Thyatira, where she was from, and started a church there. Remember, there was a church in Thyatira, Revelation 3. It was one of the churches the Lord himself rebuked. But there's no proof of that. We have records of where apostles became bishops or pastors of churches. We have no records at all where a woman led a church in the early New Testament church. Luke, through the direction of the Holy Spirit, is teaching us something about the nature and purpose of evangelism. This is one of the introductory points, introductory points I would like to make. Luke, through the direction of the Holy Spirit, is teaching us something about the nature and purpose of evangelism. When I talk about the nature of evangelism, you need to understand that the nature, it is the nature of evangelism to preach and teach, spread the seed of the gospel. That's what the Great Commission is about. Disciple the nations. There's the purpose. The nature is to share the gospel and disciple the nations. The purpose is the redemption of Christ's bride so that we may all come together and worship and adore our Lord. Evangelism is essential to the life of the church, but it is not the ultimate purpose of the church. The ultimate purpose of the church is to worship the Lord. Second point of an introduction. I've already mentioned this in our last time when we looked at this passage. There is a subtle transition. 
in verse 6 of our text, Luke is writing and he said, they went through the region. He's talking about Paul and Silas and Timothy. And in verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. It is believed and assumed or understood that Luke joined the party, the missionary team at Troas. And now he's changed the pronoun to first person plural. He's including himself. Luke wants the reader to know that he was there. And you might ask, why in the world is this notable? If you remember Luke's gospel, Luke wrote a gospel and he wrote the book of Acts. In Luke's gospel, he gives attention to some important details about that women usually care about. Luke gives specific attention, almost detailed attention, to Mary's inception and pregnancy and her response, her humble obedience before the Lord. He also gives particular attention to her visit to her cousin Elizabeth and how even Elizabeth's child leapt at the sound of Mary's voice because somehow the Holy Spirit in the future, John the Baptist knew something. And in chapter 7 of Luke, these are just a few examples. We have an account where Jesus was invited to a dinner at a Pharisee's house. And a nameless woman attended. A woman with a bad reputation. And yet, she appeared at the Lord's feet and broke an alabaster vase or vessel of ointment, expensive perfume, anointed his feet. Because she understood her need, her condition, and was pleading for the mercy of the Lord. Mercy that only he could give. Was Luke showing us how merciful and forgiving and supportive Jesus was to women? No, he was teaching us all the attitude we should take when we come before the Lord. We are the ones who should be aware of our sinful condition. We are the ones who should be aware of our spiritual need. We are the ones who should be weeping at his feet for mercy. And know that he gives it. In fact, we all need to be very careful how we read and study the Bible. We should never approach him seeking affirmation for our own perception of goodness. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, once wrote, a hypocrite would serve the Lord for leaves, or excuse me. I need glasses. A hypocrite would serve the Lord for loaves and fishes. If he were sure to be always pleasant and comfortable. 
but sincere souls follow him for his own sake, for the Lord's own sake. Through all discouragements, if you believe he is wise, do not wish to direct him. If you are sure he is faithful, and step out cheerfully upon his word. Hypocrites will go to the Lord for something they need as long as they can be kept comfortable. But we need to trust the Lord because his word is true. Luke, through the direction of his Holy Spirit, is teaching us something about the nature and purpose of evangelism And we need to pay, note, pay attention to this subtle, subtle transition, Luke including himself in this story now. As he did in the gospel, he gives attention to some important details that women would care about. And here he's about to give attention to some important details that the Bride of Christ would care about. So far, this has just been introduction. Let's get into the Word and see what we can find. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the Word in Asia, and when they had come to, up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on, to Mac go on into Macedonia, concluding that God called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the, distinct, of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. As you remember, the Holy Spirit forbade them to go into Asia. The Holy Spirit forbade them to go into Bithynia. And in Troas, Paul is given a vision. A man from Macedonia, a Greek, a Gentile, not a Hebrew. Paul sees them in the night, whether he's dreaming or whether he's... We're not sure. We're not given that... But this message is clear. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Holy Spirit is hurrying them along, directing them. James Fawcett Brown's commentary gives a little more, a little more detail about how the Lord was directing this. That commentary quotes the King James Version, verse eleven and twelve, where our ESV says we made direct voyage to Samothrace. They said loosing from Troas in the King James Version, we came. We came, and then James Fawcett Brown goes to the Greek and said it literally means we ran. 
We ran before the wind. That's how strong the winds on the ocean, on the sea, were carrying them along. To Samothrace, a lofty island, of, uh, continuing to read from James, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, a lofty island on the Thracian coast, north from Troas, with the inclination westward. The wind must have set in strong from the south and the south south-southeast to bring them there so soon as the current is strong in the opposite direction. And it took them five days, it took them two days, what usually would take them five days. The Holy Spirit was working here, directing them across land. Once they got down to the coast and took a ship, the Holy Spirit rushed them to where they needed to be. Something is going on here. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is at work, directing Paul and his, and his team. So don't preach here. Don't preach there. I will give you a vision, some clear instruction. Immediately receiving that vision, they ran to the coast, and the Lord sent favorable, favorable winds to get them where they needed to be. First off, Paul was, as you know, called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. The Lord, you remember in chapter 9, Paul, on the road to Damascus, was blinded for three days, and the Lord sent Ananias to him. And the Lord told Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. From the very outset of Paul's conversion, God wanted him to go to the Gentiles. And here it is finally happening. Verse thir chapter 13, verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And again, in Ephesians 3, he affirmed his call. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of the power of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul thus far had been going from city to city and in order to find an opening, in order to find someone who would listen, he would go first to the synagogues, to the Jews and preach and teach there. He had some success, but that's not where God wanted him. On his second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit stops him. Everywhere he wanted to go, most of these places, he wanted to revisit the churches he had already started. Holy Spirit, no, it's time for you to go to the nations. And the Holy Spirit hurried them to Philippi. This began a clear transition of Paul's ministry. But the Holy Spirit led them to Lydia. Why Lydia? Who was she? 
Her name is only mentioned twice in Scripture, both times in Acts chapter 16. You would think that since the Holy Spirit was so involved and definite in his direction that something wonderful and powerful was about to happen. In verse 13, Scripture says, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Philippi was a Roman colony. There was, in order for a Jewish synagogue to be formed, there had to be, or formed or organized, there had to be at least ten men or ten families who would come together to make at least one synagogue. That's how they would begin. There was not enough in Philippi to do that. But those few Jews who would remain would find a place privately, at this instance, down by the river to pray. Paul and his team were able to find them. In verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Philippi was not even her hometown, but her household was there. Apparently, she possibly moved there. She is described as a worshiper of God. She wasn't even natural-born Hebrew. She was a convert, much like Cornelius, the Roman centurion, in Acts chapter 10. So she was a Gentile. Verse 14, again, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her household as well, that's why we think her home was that her family was there with her. She urged us, saying, if you, are, you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. What is going on here? Here's the main point of my message. I don't think it's heresy, so I think I'm safe. Although I've not seen any other commentary bring this up. I contend that Lydia is remembered in Scripture as a foreshadow or as a representative example of the bride of Christ among the Gentiles. Well, you may think I'm far-reaching, but I don't think I am. We do know from Genesis chapter 3 that Abraham was given a promise. In your children, the nations shall be blessed. That is what's being fulfilled here. Isaiah 55, verse 5, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 49, verse 6, Is it too light a thing that you should be a servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? 
I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And Zechariah 2, verse 11. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord of that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So again, I will say, I contend that Lydia is remembered in Scripture as a foreshadow or as a representative example of the right of Christ among the Gentiles. I'm not exalting her in any way. I'm just saying she's there. And Paul is about to go through, he's in Philippi, and when you talk about early church history, and you talk about the evangelism there, Philippi is referred to as the gateway to Europe. There have been other examples in the Old Testament of the bride for the Lord. But in the Old Testament, she's always referred to as someone who has been unfaithful. You can go back and read Ezekiel 16. How he took a child abandoned on the road and brought her in, washed her and raised her, and she became unfaithful to the Lord. That's a picture of the bride for the Lord. If you've ever read the book of Prophet Hosea, he was commanded to marry an unfaithful woman because his life was supposed to reflect or mirror what Israel was already doing to the Lord Jehovah, being unfaithful to him. But here in the New Testament, we have someone unique. She's not, she's not described as someone unfaithful. Indeed, she's described, if you look closely, I mean, there's not as broad a number of clues, but she sounds like a Proverbs 31 woman. Ta-da! We read that earlier in our service. I'm going to ask you, and, and I've preached this before, it's been several years, but this week, read through Proverbs 10 Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, and take it as a metaphor. Imagine this Proverbs 31 woman as the church. What should she look like? What should her service and devotion to the Lord look like? How faithful should she be to her duties? How should she give glory to her husband, the Lord? If you take that text, Proverbs 10, 31, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, as a metaphor, it fits beautifully about what you would expect from the church. And Lydia sounds like that kind of a woman. Lydia is remembered in Scripture as a foreshadow or as a representative example of the bride of Christ among the Gentiles. When we study ecclesiology, we take that word, and I've talked about this before too. Ecclesiology comes from ecclesia, 
called out ones, the congregation of the Lord. But where do we get the word church from? Our Scottish heritage calls it Kirk. Where does it come from? According to Baker's Theological Dictionary of the Bible, our word church, like its cognate forms, Kirk, Kirk or Kirk, comes from the Greek adjective Ta Kirikon. Ta is an article, definite article in the Greek. Kirikon, Lord or Master. It was used first describing the house of the Lord, then the people of the Lord. When ecclesia is used, it's used for a public assembly, or a public assembly summoned before the Lord. But Kirk, that which belongs to the Lord. Church that which belongs to the Lord. We casually talk about, oh, tomorrow morning we're going to do church. We are church. We are the Lord's. Some people have said, oh, I believe in Jesus. I just have a problem with his church. Too many hypocrites in church. Too many problems in church. I'm going to use some strong language, but I'm not the first one to say it. St. Augustine, over 1,700 years ago, said, the church is a whore, but she is our mother, and we've no right to disrespect her. I read an article by Dave Williams. He's an Australian pastor. And he challenges us with an illustration. Imagine you are invited to a wedding, and you know the groom. You've known the groom for a long time, the very honorable man, a very respected man, a man who can provide for his, his future family, a man who is noble and admired. And before the service begins, you are able to speak to him and Tell him how much you love him and how much you respect him. And uh, you just have this one problem. My friend, your bride is a troll. I don't like her very much. This match does not look well. Would he be surprised if he were escorted out of the wedding and not allowed to attend? I don't think so. When it comes to Christ and his bride, and quoting Dave Williams, you cannot claim to love Christ while hating his bride. This is so important to say. You cannot claim to love Christ then seek to harm or disrespect his bride. There are a lot of people who have very little respect for the church. Even those who would sincerely profess faith in Christ himself. 
people harm the church when they feed her poison and spiritual junk food and form of unhealthy or even heretical teaching. People harm the church when they cause physical or emotional harm by singling people out and bullying, even sexual abuse or emotional torment. People harm the church when they join with Satan as an accuser of the brethren by bringing or considering or gossiping about people within the church, bringing false accusations. People harm the church when they do not support her or encourage her or serve her. She belongs to the Lord. It is right to talk about Christ's present love for the church. The church right now is far from perfect, but is still his bride. It is still his church. He, he, we still have the presence of his spirit with us. So right now, there may, be, there may be plenty of discouragements. There may be plenty of things that need challenging and reforming. Yet at the same time, we must not lose sight of what God is doing with and through his church at this present time. What do you think of Christ's church. It's not something you do. It's, it's who we are. We belong to him. We are the Lord's. We are his church. So that is what I think, among other things, that Paul is trying to teach us, or Luke is trying to teach us here, that Lydia is a representative and nothing more. In the Old Testament, we see more than one representative of the bride of Christ, and they're always described as unfaithful. And in the New Testament, here we see an example who's, who... Luke suggests that she is a wonderful example of a Proverbs 31 woman. The perfect kind of woman. Christ is always serving his church and loving her and protecting her and providing for her. We need to be faithful in all of our ways and all of our service for his glory his purpose let us pray thank you father for our time together and for your word and its teaching and we pray that you might help us understand how we are to live for you keep us faithful to your word and its truth we ask this all in the name of our lord and savior amen